Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about cover crops. We have four members of Extension's crops team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? Hi, I'm Anna Cates. I'm the Extension Soil Health Specialist based in St. Paul. I'm Fabian Fernandez, a Nutrient Management Specialist focused on nitrogen management for corn cropping systems, and I am based of uh, on St. Paul campus. Hi, I'm Carl Rosen. I'm uh, focused on nutrient management and I work primarily with uh, irrigated crops and uh, processing crops as well. Hi, I'm Liz Stahl. I'm an extension educator in crops. I work out of the Worthington Regional Extension office and focus on corn and soybean management issues. Great. Uh, so starting off, what should farmers who are considering growing cover crops this year be thinking about? Well, we usually tell people who are thinking about growing cover crops to start with your goals. What are your goals with cover crops should determine how you manage your cover crops, um, especially for the first time. Pretty common goals are to prevent erosion, to uh, uh, assist with water quality goals in your watershed, which is a big reason why growers get cost share. Sometimes people are trying to provide forage for a livestock operation or to sell, and some people are trying to um, uh, preserve nutrients in their soil to hopefully give some nitrogen or phosphorus to their next crop. So if you wanna grow a lot of forage, you're probably gonna be trying to plant something uh, at a higher density and things like that. Whereas if you are just trying to prevent erosion, keep your soil from moving, we've had quite a lot of erosion events around the state this year, then a lighter seeding mix might be fine. Another thing I'd be thinking about this year is that it has been a dry year. And so people are gonna to wanna to monitor moisture. It wasn't a great year for interseeding early into corn. Um, and ideally you're gonna try and um, make sure you have the moisture for your cover crops to use some of it without depleting moisture for your cash crop. You know, I started doing research with cover crops uh, a few years ago. And I figured that it would not be as simple as sometimes it's uh, presented, um, especially by uh, people that are really excited about cover crops and, and think that they will solve a lot of problems and, and they can certainly do that. But uh, sometimes um, they're presented as like, well, this great thing that it's easy to manage and is not easy to manage. <laughs> Even for, for us that we are doing research in kind of a small plots that it's easier to, to manage compared to large extensive uh, land. It is, it is a challenge. There are a lot of things that I think farmers that are interested in cover crops uh, need to, to understand in terms of uh, weed management, in terms of uh, managing the cover crop in rotation with the cash crops. I think there is not enough time in the podcast to go into dive into all of these <laughs> things, but certainly I think it's very important for farmers that are considering cover crops that have not done uh, work with cover crops to realize that it is a, a more difficult system to manage and, and that uh, getting information on how to manage these things before you start, it's really important. Yeah, I'll add to that, you know, we think of the whole farm system includes labor, equipment, finances, as well as, you know, your interests and what you're excited to do on your farm. And so when you're starting with cover crop, take all those things into account. Um, we do have some resources on our website and on the Midwest Cover Crops Council website that I'd recommend people look at and explore as they're, if they're new to cover crops, or even if they want to try something new, uh, that's going to change how the system works. 
Yeah, and I think just to add on to your comments as well, too, is just I always encourage people, you know, start out small. It's not something you want to do on a whole, you know, all your acres or all your soybean acres or all your corn acres. Just start out small. And I always tell people, hit the easy button, you know, try easy entry points first. Um, and then as learn as you go, because, again, you're you're doing something different and you can't just change one piece of it. There's a lot of things that are going to be affected if you, you know, start planting cover crops. Um, so again, just start small. That's where I encourage people to do. Yeah. And I, I echo all of those comments. Uh, cover crops can be a challenge, especially if, if you haven't done that before. Um, I think one of the things to, uh, uh, really consider is what kind of cover crop you're going to grow. Um, are you are you going to grow one that um, is uh, going to be terminated in the in the spring, or are you going to grow one that uh, is going to uh, winter kill before the the next crop? So those are things that need to be considered, and uh, that will also affect how how they're managed as well. Yeah, and um, the other big thing is because cover crops have become kind of an important part of what uh, many farmers are uh, interested in, in looking at is seed availability. Sometimes you may be planning to, um, to plant cover crops and then you find out that there is no seed available. So those are other things that are important to kind of keep in mind. Uh, the, the resources that you will need in terms of equipment, time, uh, seed to to manage this this new system and the the other thing that um, I I also think that it's it's important to consider is if you're going to grow cover crops um, just like um, if you're growing any other crop you are not an expert after one year the same thing is true for cover crops uh, you know cover crops just like crops are uh, respond to to weather. And so your experience this year may be completely different next year, just simply based on, on the growing season conditions, how fall or spring conditions are when you're terminating the crop, if you're um, uh, terminating it uh, before planting, things like that. Uh, all of those things, I've, like I say, I've done research now for a number of years and it seems like every year is a little bit different and I learned something new that I didn't know before. And all of that is related to how much precipitation we have, what kind of temperatures we have and how those cover crops develop. What are some tips for getting a cover crop established in Minnesota? Well, that's a great question too. And, and something, uh, again, that relates to what your goals are, because that's going to determine when you're seeding that cover crop. But um, again, to getting to establish the key thing with cover crops, you want to optimize that biomass so you can optimize the benefits that you might get from that cover crop. So some of the things when we're looking at cover crops, you know, seeding date, that really matters. Um, I've been working with uh, Axel Garcia Garcia at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center in Lamberton. He's been doing some really great work looking at seeding date of cereal rye in the fall, uh, for example. And yeah, it's been very striking the differences that you can see uh, versus, you know, looking at cereal rye seeded in September versus, say, into October. And, um, you know, it's not just the difference that you see in biomass in the fall, but also in the spring that October seeding dates, we just haven't seen that be able to catch up to uh, what those earlier September uh, seeding dates are. Now, when you look at our corn soybean system, yeah, that can be a challenge. How are you going to get that cover crop seeded, you know, in September? Both 
but you know uh, we do know that again uh, if you can get it seeded in September how you're going to do that uh, odds are that's going to have better biomass than if you seed it later um, and that's where again you're getting the most benefits from the cover crop and have more biomass um, other things to be looking at uh, besides seeding date you know look at your seeding rate um, that's an area where we've done a little bit of work we could still do some more we, we use a pretty standard uh, rate of 60 pounds per acre of cereal rye that's been very typical um, we are looking at some work uh, where we've increased that seeding rate up to like 90 pounds versus 120 pounds uh, 120 yeah I think we're pretty much agree that that's too much <laughs> you know we actually got too much because you want to have enough uh, um, you, you got to be able to get a cash crop out of this too um, but uh, but again that's one thing to, to tweak around you don't want to go too low because um, again if you know like we were talking about with moisture if you don't have adequate moisture um, now you're just reducing them out that uh, you'd get from that in itself so again you want to start with a decent enough rate um, also another thing we've talked a lot about is your herbicide program um, you know again that's a big part of my work is looking at weed management herbicide resistant weeds um, so you want to be able to manage those weeds well the products that you're using you don't want that to manage your cover crop as well so um, most corn and soybean herbicides um, have you know something like cereal rye that's been able to establish pretty well and other research would would uh, agree with that too from other states um, as well so that's been a pretty safe cover crop to use uh, for good establishment but you know if you're putting some other diverse mixes out there that's where again that herbicide program got to even look at that even closer because you can have some sensitivity issues and you know unfortunately control your cover crop with that herbicide uh, seeding method matters too you know we've seen drilling you're getting you know better seed to soil contact so thus you can get better establishment say then aerial it's just laying on the ground you can get some predation um, again not that seed to soil contact moisture if you can time it to have moisture right after seeding that increases your chances of getting a good stand as well um, but again you know just look at what your goals are um, I know um, again here a lot of people look at you know should we do a mixture versus just a single species I come at cover crops a lot of times from the weed management standpoint and erosion control so if those are your main goals something like cereal rye as in itself that can be very you know very successful with minimal uh, input costs as well and um, you know in terms of um, crop system and the rotation I think it's also an important thing to keep in mind uh, we have seen uh, especially for aerial seeding that uh, when you have a lot of crop residue on the surface that can create some challenges on establishing the cover crop uh, in terms of uniformity um, we have a study looking at um, continuous corn and a corn soybean rotation and consistently we see that uh, with aerial seeding the continuous corn where you have a lot more crop residue uh, and this is kind of in a conservation tillage system where you have some buildup of crop residue on the soil surface the the soil to seed contact is not very good and you end up with clumps all over the field and and you don't have that uniformity um, and one of the things that we have uh, seen is that with 
uh, even in a corn soybean rotation, the we have both both crops every year, so we are able to under the same conditions we are able to look at what happens in terms of uh, cover crop establishment. Specifically, I'm talking about rye. This is what we are using, uh, but it would be uh, I imagine applicable to to other cover crops as well. Is that even in the corn soybean where you have corn residue, so where you're going to plant soybeans the next year, the establishment is not as good as in the soybean ground where you have soybean residue that decomposes quickly and you have better um, contact seed to soil contact and you get a much better establishment. Um, we have kind of circumvented some of those issues by looking at possibilities of um, removing some of the corn residue after harvest. Uh, but of course, you have to um, to see, well, if that works for your system, you know, what are you going to do with that residue? Are you going to bail it and be able to use it? Uh, how much of it to remove? Because, you know, one of the, the reasons uh, people like to establish cover crops is because of soil conservation. And so if you're now removing residue, that can that can be a problem. If you remove too much residue, you can uh, lower the, the, the carbon inputs into that farm system. Things like that are, I think, very important to to consider. And then, um, in terms of um, circumventing some of these issues with residue, one of the things that we have tried is doing drilling. But of course, that also gets into some of the stuff that Liz was talking about with planting date. Uh, typically, unless you have very high clearance equipment, uh, you have to wait until harvest to be able to do. The, the drilling and in our experience last year especially we had a study where we drilled the, the the seed we did get a very good establishment very uniform but we were very concerned that we may not get any growth in fact i i was worried that it would not even germinate in time because again you're waiting until harvest so that means delay planting for the cover crop and depending on how the fall comes uh, sometimes we don't have many uh, warm days after that. And so there may not even be much germination happening. For our uh, conditions last year, we actually, I was surprised we did get enough uh, snow cover to protect the very small uh, seedlings that we had emerged in the fall. And so that helped us protect the cover crop through the winter. But if it's a, uh, a winter where we don't get a lot of snow, you can potentially run into issues where you may not have any cover crop the next spring. So those are certainly things uh, things to consider. Yeah, so um, just to follow up on the drilling, um, uh, I, I realize with corn and soybeans that could be a challenge, but um, for some of the processing crops, uh, I think that's the way to go. Um, they're harvested a bit earlier and also with silage. If you're harvesting silage, uh, you might be able to get in and, and uh, get in at a reasonable time. And so depending on your cropping system, uh, there's some flexibility if you're if you're harvesting a little bit earlier and depending on the types of crops that you're using. Yeah, Carl, that's like the easiest entry points really I look at for cover crops is after a canning crop because you get a nice window to get established. You can get a drill out there or, you know, corn silage and that can shift later on in the season, but still you should have a nice window uh, to get out there and use a drill because like, you know, like Fabian, like you were talking about, it can be 
tough you know how are you going you need some special equipment you know to seed a cover crop into a standing uh, cash crop late in the fall you know to get that window to get enough you know early enough establishment because if you wait till after harvest we know harvest can be sometimes into november you know so uh, that just doesn't leave us much time at all to get anything out there and established yeah, and from a practical standpoint, when you're starting out, I always recommend that people go to their local soil and water, see if there's any cost share available. Maybe you've got to apply through the federal EQIP program that has a cost share bucket of money, or maybe there's local money where they have sort of different uh, different parameters they're trying to hit. The One Watershed, One Plans working through the state often have cost share for cover crops as part of their implementation funding. And that can help, like Liz said, start small and, and get the help you need both uh, technically and financially to experiment a little bit. One thing that we haven't really talked about much is um, perennial cover crops. All the stuff that we've kind of been talking about is mostly related to annual crops that uh, you plant after harvest or sometime during the growing season and then terminate the following spring or, or, or winter kill. Um, but um, we are also doing some work with perennial cover crops, uh, specifically cura clover. And um, that is certainly um, an, an interesting system. Uh, the, some of the things that if you are planning to do something like that and to establishing that cover crop is that um, the, the first year you really have to baby that cover crop. You, can, uh, you really have to manage for that cover crop. Uh, everybody that has done work with Cura Clover uh, says that uh, it kind of takes three years for that cover crop to really develop fully. It's like everybody says that the first year slips, it sleeps, second year uh, creeps, and the third year leaps. <laughs> and uh, we certainly have seen that the first year we, we planted the Cura Clover, it grew very little. We tried to manage for the cover crop, in fact, um, and this is it kind of looked at the, a long-term investment in cover crop because it's actually, you cannot intercrop the first year, you have to kind of let it grow by itself. And so that could be a huge hit. And that's where what Anna said in terms of cost sharing would be an important thing because it's, it's pretty difficult to just take land out of production for a full year. Uh, and some people actually even suggest two years. In our case, we did it for one year. We were able to, to get enough establishment that first year without uh, a cash crop, uh, inner crop with Cura. And then um, second year, we started in, intercropping, um, which also has some challenges and things to keep in mind. For instance, uh, you, you cannot do full width tillage. You have to do something like a strip till uh, for that system so that you can have Cura clover between the rows growing. Um, one benefit that we've seen with Cura clover is specifically in terms of water quality, it does scavenge for residual nitrogen very well. And so you reduce nitrate leaching substantially after that cover crop is established. Uh, but it is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it is a challenge when it comes to managing, managing weeds uh, and and pests um, because um, it, it's a legume and so you have to to manage it carefully and then the other part too is that after the third year once it's 
completely established, if you don't manage it correctly, you can actually end up having a competition, pretty stiff competition with QR Clover that will take resources, water, nutrients uh, from the cash crop. And so you can end up having lower yields. And so you have to look into suppressing that cover crop once it's established so that it doesn't compete with the with a cash crop. So those again, uh, more on the more intense kind of system, I would not recommend starting with a system like that if you have never done any work with cover crops, but it is certainly um, one that uh, could have some benefits, uh, especially if you're doing grazing, for instance, or things like that, it could lend itself very well to, to those kinds of systems. Yeah, I think that I'm so glad you brought up that system, Fabian, because it's such a neat one and it represents kind of an ideal, really low input system where you've got the clover kind of providing some nitrogen to the corn and continuous living cover on the landscape. I would just think it's cool to bring up because it shows this breadth of research that we're doing. We're looking at the really obvious entry points into cover crops, you know, after canning crops, after silage. And we're also trying to figure out what are going to be good systems in 10 years if we want to, um, you know, fully perennialize the landscape in a different way. What are some options for that? I feel like that represents kind of the breadth of things we do here. The other thing is, I can't believe, Fabian, that was the first time we've said anything about tillage, which is a really important aspect of cover crop management. Even if you're not doing curry clover, if you do full width tillage of your cover crop, A, it'll probably be pretty messy, uh, depending on your implement, the time of year and the state of your cover crop. Uh, it could be just a, a hard a hard residue to till through and B, you'll lose a lot of the benefits you gained in terms of soil structure um, if you till up your cover crop residue. So we try to do a low till, no till system uh, to get the full benefits of cover crops. That's interesting. You mentioned about the, yeah, the tillage aspect too, because you're making me think about some of the first work that we did as well as looking at, uh, you know, when we had a prevent plant situation um, or you've got drawn out spots too. So that's where a lot of people, their first time trying cover crops was putting, uh, you know, cover crop out in those areas when you couldn't get your cash crop out. Um, so planting it mid in the middle of the season, but it just, kind of made me cringe when you'd hear about people that were tilling up these cover crops in the fall and you're like oh you know that's kind of destroying you know the whole benefit of, of putting the cover crop out there so tillage is a really key thing um, full with tillage just doesn't work that great with cover crops strip tillage uh, we've been looking at that that can work well you know or doing no till in one crop and and tillage in another um, yeah that that's that can we can make that fit um, but yeah you don't want to do just full-scale tillage because you're kind of losing the benefits, I think. Should growers consider applying fertilizer to help get a cover crop established? That's that's always an, an interesting question. And one that I think it depends quite a bit on, on your goals. Speaking uh, specifically on a corn and soybean cropping system, I would say no. Typically you would not want to apply fertilizer because most often, one of the benefits of the cover crop, especially after corn, um, but I would say even, even after soybean is to try to scavenge any nitrogen that may be still in the soil. Uh, and the reason I mentioned after soybean too, even though we don't apply nitrogen fertilizers on soybean typically, is that um, between the time of physiological maturity and harvest, there is quite a bit of mineralization that takes place in a lot of our soils. And so you can actually end up with quite a bit of nitrogen 
present in the soil and that cover crop, the, one of the major reasons that I think people use cover crops is to, to keep that nitrogen in the system, to take it up. And so, um, so from that standpoint, yes, I would not apply nitrogen. And then in terms of other nutrients like phosphorus and potassium, typically if you're managing things correctly for your cash crop, there should be, um, you should be in a medium to high, um, potassium and phosphorus test levels in the soil, which would be sufficient to supply what the, the cover crop would need to, to get established correctly. Um, so again, from that standpoint, I would say you should not really be looking at applying a fertilizer. Of course, if you're growing a cover crop as a second crop for, for some kind of um, yield or harvest, then that would be a kind of a different story. Um, but again, this is very focused on kind of corn after soybean and trying to use a cover crop as a scavenger uh, for nutrients. Yeah, and I, I kind of agree with that, Bobby, and um, particularly um, for a, a system uh, where you're trying to scavenge uh, nutrients uh, with uh, canning crops or processing crops, uh, you actually are harvesting those crops fairly green. So there's quite a bit of nutrients available um, after um, those crops. And so you'll be using, say, something like a winter rye to help scavenge some of those nutrients. So I would say, yeah, definitely in those situations, do not apply fertilizers. There could be some situations, as Fabian said, if you're growing for a another cash crop uh, where you might want to apply. Um, also, uh, we're doing some work with um, mustard um, as a uh, kind of a, a way to control soil borne diseases. So you really want to try to uh, maximize biomass. And in that case, uh, in, many, uh, in that case, uh, uh, some fertilizer may be needed um, to do that. Uh, we often grow uh, following um, say a small grain or even a legume on a sandy soil. Uh, we plant the, uh, the mustard in say August or maybe early September, but we really wanna try to maximize the biomass so that when it is incorporated, you get release of uh, the chemicals within the, the biomass to suppress some of the diseases that may be there for the following crop, which is usually potatoes. And just to put that in context, um, you know, we're saying there's enough nutrients left for the cover crop uh, after your cash crop. And that's because these cover crops are just not getting that big. They're not using that much nutrients compared to your cash crop. So, you know, your silage yields are maybe around 20 tons an acre. Your cover crop biomass, you know, if we're good, we're at like half a ton to a ton an acre. Yeah. And, and when you're trying to maximize biomass and say a mustard, you're looking um, at probably double or triple that. And so that's why having a little bit of uh, nitrogen there, particularly for those mustards to get that biomass going, it would be beneficial. Yeah. And again, coming to, you know, corn and soybean systems where typically the harvest happens a little bit later, more often than not, the, the, limited, the limitation for growth is not nutrients, but it's temperature and sometimes moisture. And so if it's a dry fall, for instance, applying fertilizer likely is not going to help that cover crop um, take up those nutrients because maybe the limiting factor is um, 
the lack of uh, enough moisture. And then with temperature, like Anna mentioned, the, the growth is very limited. Typically, we don't really get a lot of biomass with um, annual cover crops. And so they don't really have a huge demand for nutrients. And if you're applying or planting cover crops for water quality benefits, the typical time when we lose most of our nutrients is in the spring, not so much in the fall. The fall, typically we come to the fall with soils that are dry or drier than, than in the spring. And so they have quite a bit of a capacity to absorb and retain water. And so we don't get nutrient loss out of the system typically in the fall. It is in the spring when we have the, the potential for nutrient loss. And so that's when the cover crop will really start to grow. And, and as I mentioned, the nutrients <clears throat> should be there for the cover crop to have enough to create enough biomass that it will, on one hand, take nutrients out of the system, uh, uh, immobilize those nutrients, and also use water, which is the other part when we're talking about nutrients leaching is the two things, right? Is the amount of nutrient present in the soil and then the amount of water moving through the soil. So if we can limit the amount of water that moves through the soil because we have an active crop taking up water, then we, we reduce the, the amount of leaching potential. Yeah, and I, I did mention about putting some nitrogen on um, for the mustard uh, and then incorporating that mustard. So the one way to help reduce losses is to also then plant another cover crop of winter rye um, at the time you terminate the uh, mustard. And so that the following spring, you'll have some rye in there early on to perhaps help reduce some some losses of, of nitrogen. What recent uh, cover crop studies have U of M researchers been doing and what have we learned from them? Well, it's pretty exciting times, I think. We've got a lot of neat projects that are going on right now and, and have been wrapping up a few of the ones that I've been uh, working with, for example. And, and before I start talking about those two, I just, uh, again, want to mention that it's just really exciting that we're able to do the work here in Minnesota because one of the things when we when we didn't have that research there I mean there's so many things people might think we we know all these basic things about cover crops but there's so many things that we really don't know you know and you can't just take research from down south where they have a much longer growing season a different cropping system different soil types different moisture you know environmental conditions all those things um, and just expect that all to work the same up here because more often than not, it's probably not going to. So yeah, it's been really exciting uh, to have a number of projects going. Uh, for example, we've got a project that's just wrapping up. Uh, Greg Johnson, he's out of uh, the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Wasika, uh, has been the lead on this project. And they're looking at um, trade-offs and weed control with cover crops. And basically, you know, can we use some pre-emergence herbicides? What kind of impact does that have on the cover crops? And we looked at uh, three different cover crops there. Um, we had red clover was one of them. We just never got very good establishment of that one. So really the results right now, we're looking at like cereal rye and, and camelina. Uh, but the take home message from that so far is that some of the standard products, and we didn't have a huge number of uh, herbicides that we could look at. I got to put, you know, the, the caution on that, but the products that we did look at really didn't have an impact um, on our fall established cover crops. So that was a plus, you know, that's encouraging. Um, and, you know, again, a lot of the work that we do 
uh, deals with cereal rye, one of the reasons that we have had good success, I think, with that is because that does tolerate a lot of the herbicides that we use in a corn soybean system here. Plus, it's easy to establish. Um, and um, yeah, it's very cost effective, has grown well. So uh, a lot of our work, again, focuses around that. We also have termination trials when working with uh, these with Axel Garcia Garcia at Lamberton. Um, and we've been looking at over the years, either with corn or corn and soybeans, um, kind of in a nutshell, what we've seen so far. If you, um, you know, compare terminating that cover crop before uh, planting of your cash crop and the standard time has been like 10 to 14 days prior. Um, yeah, that's where you're optimizing your corn yield. We have seen an issue, you know, you're seeing a reduction in corn yield if you plant that, uh, if you delay termination till planting in corn, and certainly if you delay termination after. So planting green, you know, where you're planting that uh, cash crop into a living cover crop, that certainly is more of a challenge with corn um, and you can expect to have a yield trade off there. So again, it depends what your goals are, what you wanna do. Uh, now a soybean, uh, we have seen that planting soybeans into a standing cover crop. We haven't seen that so far in most of our work to really have an impact on yield. And even if you terminated that cover crop a little bit after, not always, though some years we do see an impact when you delay uh, the termination of the cover crop. So again, that's some of our termination trial work. So less, less risky uh, to plant green and corn, uh, excuse me, in soybean overall. Um, also, we uh, have a big project that just started up uh, looking at managing herbicide resistant weeds using cover crops. So um, here again, we're looking at seeding rate, uh, number of seeding rates, different planting dates, um, different termination timings. So stay tuned. We'll have more results on that uh, in the future as well. But but one thing we did see, uh, I think is pretty clear in a year where we were planting late, uh, like we did this year, you don't want to delay that termination of the cover crop too late because uh, it was really a challenge uh, in corn to plant into that significant amount of biomass. And especially we looked at a seeding rate up to 120 pounds. That was just too much to really uh, get get into. Um, so um, again, some of the work there. Also, uh, Axel's been working with interseeding um, cover crops in a corn. Um, here, uh, his work is basically, you know, looked at uh, seeding with the cash crop don't recommend that, um, or V2, V4, V6, or V8 in corn. And around that V2 stage, that's where we've actually gotten biomass produced. Uh, and this is with annual ryegrass and crimson clover. Once you see it later, it just gets shaded out or they've had establishment issues, uh, moisture. You know, we're just not getting enough moisture around that time. So that's some of the work that we're doing. And, and also this cover crop options, um, like a seeding in the summer, you know, just seeing how much biomass gets produced by these different cover crops. That's not a great time to plant cereal rye. You know, if you have a drawn out spot, you know, like sorghum sedan, tremendous amount of biomass can be produced, pearl millet and so forth. So again, that's just some of the work that, that I've been involved with. With our group, one of the things that uh, we have been looking at is in irrigated sands. Uh, the concern there, of course, is water quality, trying to minimize leaching to groundwater. And so um, we have uh, established since 2016 a site where we have corn, soybean, and continuous corn. And this has been funded through Minnesota Department of Agriculture with uh, clean water funds, um, where we have rye, 
planted in the fall and then we have a living mulch of cura clover and um, we in the last two years we have been monitoring the water quality for since 2016 for this cover crop system but uh, in the last two years we have added um, a whole bunch of additional measurements to try to understand the cover crop system a little bit better. Uh, we know that everything related to nitrogen uh, in the nitrogen cycle is connected. And so um, in addition to looking at nitrate leaching, we are also looking at the effect of these cover crops uh, in terms of ammonia volatilization, nitrous oxide emissions, and uh, nitrogen mineralization and immobilization in the soil to, to try to understand uh, um, in a more complete way the, the nitrogen's um, budget that we have for this system. We are, you know, the data is preliminary right now, but uh, the idea behind looking at all of these things is, okay, if we reduce, let's say, leaching, are we increasing volatilization losses as this residue decomposes in the soil surface? Or are we increasing the amount of uh, immobilization during the early spring, but then the uh, nitrogen that is immobilizing the uh, residue decomposes in time for it to be actually available for the crop and reducing the total nitrogen needs through fertilizer for that crop. So those are some of the things that we are looking at in that study. And then we have another very large study in South Central Minnesota on a fine texture soil. Uh, this is a, a project that is being funded through the um, Fertilize, Fertilizer Research and Education Council, as well as the uh, Minnesota Soybean Growers, where we, we have many different uh, variables that we are looking at with cover crops. So we have, uh, it's a poorly drained soil, so we have treatments that have drain and undrained conditions with tile drainage. So we have those two comparisons. And then we have three tillage systems, no-till, conventional till, and a strip till. And then three res crop residue management systems where we leave the residue, the crop residue as you would normally. Another one where we remove some of the residue and then another one where we are planting uh, a rye cover crop in the fall. And so we are looking at all those variables of drainage, tillage, uh, and the crop residue in the response that we get to, to nitrogen, both in the corn side, as well as in soybean. We have both crops present in this study. So we are looking at those effects on the yields of corn, where we add nitrogen, we have several different nitrogen rates in there. And then on soybean, just to see how um, this cover crop and management systems impact the yield of soybean. So those are kind of two studies, very large studies that um, include cover crops. And uh, as we mentioned throughout the, the podcast, we are just really learning a lot. Every year we are learning new things. Um, it's kind of uncharted territory when it comes to some of these things. So we are, we are learning how, how the different cover crops and different management systems uh, work in relationship to, to the cash crops. You know, and you reminded me, Fabian, there's another project too I, I need to mention too, because we talk about cover crops 
you know, how to establish them, but it's also very important to know how to best terminate them as well, too. And, and that's one project, uh, Dublin Sarangi, he's our new extension weed scientist, too, started this project this year. And, and looking at different um, herbicide treatments, also had a mowing treatment in there and a tillage treatment. And as we have seen in other states as well, glyphosate, that's been the most effective way uh, to terminate a cover crop. I know sometimes people have tried products like Liberty um, or Paraquat. You know, like Liberty, yeah, great product. Um, but for the time of year that we're trying to terminate that cover crop, um, glyphosate still has been the best performing. So again, that's something that first year is this year, but just the general results that we've seen so far. So that's one of the projects going on right now too. And uh, I'm so excited hearing about all these different ways we're studying cover crops. I was looking at my own research project list and thinking, I don't have that many cover crop studies. That's because in most of my on-farm studies, we're trying to look at a whole soil health system that incorporates principles of increased living cover, reducing tillage, keeping the ground covered, that kind of thing. And so cover crops ends up being part of this sort of larger system. One of my students is trying to tease apart specifically the effect of having living cover in that shoulder season, either spring or fall, and which soil health variables it changes. So I look at a lot of uh, active carbon and nitrogen pools, and it seems like the living cover, even more than tillage, has an effect on, on some of those pools. But um, like I said, when we think about a farm, we got to think about all those pieces together. And so my on-farm research usually looks at a whole system without the effect of cover crops isolated. I do have some research looking at water use uh, in plots with uh, cover crops and, you know, breaking news, they are using water and that's good in some years and harder in other years. So we continue to monitor that to try to understand uh, when we get a good uh, benefit from that water use by cover crops. Yeah, and we finished a three-year study looking at um, how cover crops affect uh, nitrogen um, fertilizer use in a subsequent field corn trial and um, we found uh, and this was following sweet corn uh, with a with and without a cover crop and what we found as long as you terminated at an appropriate time uh, you did not have a, a nitrogen penalty in in our particular situation we're also looking at um, as i mentioned before the mustard cover crops and we're finding that that they're very effective at reducing some of the soil borne diseases we think that that might be a way to reduce the amount of fumigation that's actually being used on uh, some some potato crops uh, at this time. We're also looking at the soil microbiome as affected by some of these cover crops, and that's a whole new area that uh, that I think can open up some some new avenues. One other thing I forgot to mention is that um, you know. I think everywhere likes to say that their site is the hardest place to plant cover crops. Uh, but in Northwest and Western Minnesota, they have some unique challenges with a slightly shorter growing season, sugar beets in rotation, uh, really fine textured soils that don't dry out fast. And so I'm working with collaborators at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center and then our extension collaborators in West Central Minnesota to look at cover crops in beet rotations and also to look at planting soybeans green in those systems to see how, how it works in a slightly shorter growing season. I also wanted to mention that um, the one study that I mentioned earlier with, with cura clover and rye, it is in a sandy soil, so it's irrigated because we are very interested in water budgets to, to measure uh, nitrate leaching loads and things like that. We are monitoring very closely the, uh, the water budget 
for this system. So uh, trying to understand what happens in terms of water use when you have rye or when you have a living mulch in the system, how much water is being used, even though it's irrigated. Um, and so potentially moisture is not as much of a concern is still an expense because if it's if this cover crop is using water and you need to replenish it with irrigation that adds to the cost and so we want you to understand that that piece as well all right any last words from the group yeah we have a cover crop field day coming up on august 18th that's at the southwest research and outreach center by lamberton and uh, we'll have check-in at 8 30 the program will run from nine to one o'clock we'll be talking about uh, you know highlighting the the inner seeding research our planting green research i'll have Bruce potter there talking about uh, insect interactions with cover crops um, and uh, also uh, grad students highlighting their research and and also real highlight will be we'll have nancy elke come down and she'll be talking about the breeding work that's been going on with cover crops too so again just kind of really neat angles uh, from everything. So again, that goes from nine to one. Uh, we do have lunch included, uh, but if you wanna reserve your lunch, make sure you register by August 12th. There's no cost to attend, uh, but, we, but we do ask that people register just to make sure that you get a meal. Um, and once the field day, we're kind of having the official wrap up at one, we'll have like from one to two o'clock, little focus group needs assessment. So everybody's welcome to attend that, but just kind of discussing what they see as you know research and education needs now that we do have a few years of cover crop research um you know where do we go from here and and what kind of are those burning questions people are having so we're hoping to gather that information so again that's on august 18th at lamberton and we have uh, registration just go online to our extension crops website and you should be able to find you know where to register for that field day and um, also on the same day, on August 18, uh, there is um, a field day at the um, Rochelle Farm in Pope County. That's where we will be talking about some of the research that we are doing there with cure clover and rye in this irrigated system that I mentioned earlier. And that field day starts at uh, 10 in the morning. It also has uh, lunch included and it finishes right after lunch. One more to bookmark, September 9th at Brent Fuchs Farm in Rice County. Um, there'll be information on our MOSH website about that. Uh, that's mosh.umn.edu. And um, yeah, we're going to talk about soil function and really try to get at how the whole farm system interacts when you apply the different practices. All right. That about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRACT, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.